0: Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan and I'm here with my co-host Milena.
1: Hey guys, today we're going to learn what it's like to party in the Congo and what the dangers of the concrete jungle are.
0: Okay, so ever since we got word from your dad that we're potentially going back to Colombia in a little bit, I will have you know, I've been practicing my Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) Don't laugh.
1: No. (laughs) Is this... Is this the same kind of practicing your Spanish you did before the last time we went, where you spent your entire time focusing on food words and nothing else? And you
0: know what? I could go into any restaurant and be fairly confident with what I was about to eat. So, yeah, that did work out pretty okay. But uh, I've whipped out my trusty old phrase and uh, trying to flex my Spanish muscles a bit. So I'll have you know that I'm working on... Lo siento. Soy Americana. (laughs) Mi, Espanol. Muy mal. I was about to ask you. Muy mal.
1: (laughs) I was about to ask you if the phrase you were working on was... (laughs) oh my
0: god I knew you were gonna say that all right so I'm at like a level one right now and for me that's like a level 15 I need to work my way up
1: <laughs> to ask for a fork
0: that's gonna be like the highlight of our visit our next visit I need to be able to swagger into any goddamn restaurant and like oops I dropped my fork now I have to ask for another one
1: oh man and it's gonna
0: be annoying after the third restaurant I do that in just so I can show off and be like I know how to ask for a fork I have (laughs) redeemed myself Uh, until someone nudges the spoon off the table and y'all just look at me with a dead stare like what are you gonna do now gringa Hmm? Hmm?" I'd be like oh shit I did not prepare for this (laughs) no one fucking touched my knife
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's so funny
0: so I'm getting ready. I know we've got a while, but I'm getting ready. We've got it. I just thought it. I'd share that with you.
1: Oh, man. That makes me happy. I guess I got to brush up on my Spanish, too. So if anyone wants to write us in Spanish,
0: please direct all inquiries to Milena. That's M-I-L-E-N-A, <laughs> por favor.
1: We got to practice, so Anytime now, guys. God. Oh, man. All right, so
0: where your woman, where you're taking us today, did she need Spanish? Like, what language did she she need? No, I was about to
1: tell you. She needed Swahili.
0: Okay. I I don't know a damn word in Swahili. (laughs) I mean, any language that's not English I'd have a hard time with. All right, so tell me where, well, first, who is she and where is she going and what is she doing and uh, where are you taking us on this exciting science adventure?
1: Okay, so my lady is Diane Fossey. And I decided that I was going to reward myself from last week's mathematician.
0: I was about to say, what, like, gold star, I'm not hungover for recording.
1: Oh, that too. Yeah, gold star, not hungover for recording, although I did have a few beers last night. I
0: was about to say, you've totally earned a beer for not being hungover.
1: Yeah, I'm super proud of myself. That and I did a mathematician, and you know how I feel about math. So I needed to, like, wind back a little and, like, get into something that I know, but not so much so that I did with, like, DNA with you because you were out. You were, like, I, you were tagging me I love you out. so much. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, and, I'm here. I'm along for the ride. I may not understand where we're going, but I'm going to try.
1: I <laughs> know. Like, that's that's fair. Like, thank you. I just know that, like, I'm not going to dive deep. I'm going to, like, make it super easy today. And I really wanted to, like, talk about somebody who worked with animals so Diane Fossey was born January 16th, 1932 in San Fran, California. She was a primatologist and a conservationalist, and she observed mountain gorillas. She always loved animals, so she started riding horses at the age of 6 and then she was like in riding teams, she got like a letter like that sort of thing. So she was always on a horse. And then she grew up with her mom and her stepdad. So her dad wasn't in the picture because her mom was like, no, I don't want you in the picture. I want this new husband of mine to be in the picture. Apparently she was like a like a model. And he was like a very successful business owner. And he was like not – he did not have like any emotional support for Diane. And he was like super strict. And he wanted to push her to being, like, into finance. And, like, if she didn't, she wouldn't get money for college and she wouldn't get the support. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. She went into finance. She went to a Marin Junior College, which is, like, a community college for Marin County uh, in California. And she went for business. The end. And that's it. And now you get to go. Exactly. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously not. So... She finished one year for business, uh, which, let's be honest, one year in community college for a business program. You're doing all your gen eds. You're doing your English. You're doing your math. You're doing like a science. Like you're not in business yet, right? So you're just getting all that shit out Mm -hmm. of the way. She finished her first year in between her freshman and her sophomore year. She got a job on a ranch. She loved it. She loved working there. She loved working with the animals. She was super excited that she got to go, but she had to leave early because she got sick.
0: Was it tuberculosis?
1: No, it was chicken pox. So the ranch made her remember her love for animals, and she was like, I'm going to be a vet. Sorry, leave me alone, stepdad. And she enrolled in the University of California, pre-vet, which was great until she had to take a physics and chemistry course.
0: No, that would get me too. (laughs)
1: Like, I, I read her the first part of her life, and I was like, minus the strict, not loving stepdad, this is practically my life. (laughs) I also didn't get through pre-vet so that's fine it's whatever she got discouraged because that's what you do when you take very angry physics and math classes and she changed her major again and this time it was occupational therapy at San Jose State College she graduated yeah I mean not so bad you know At least she chose a practical skill set. She graduated in 1951, interned at California hospitals for about a year, and then got a job as the director of occupational therapy at COSAR Crippled Children's Hospital.
0: That just rolls right off the tongue.
1: (laughs) I wish I was making this name up. I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) COSAR with a K. So, She became friends with a Mary White Gainer Henry, who was a secretary to the hospital's chief administrator. And then she also made friends with her husband, who's Michael J. Henry, who was a doctor there. And they lived on a farm outside of the city limits. And they were like, hey, you like animals. Why don't you come live with us on this farm and work with our livestock and just hang out? Right. And she was like, yes. I'm going to do that thing. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to deal with these animals and live with these people because they're more like a family than I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And then she goes about her life, you know, practicing occupational therapy on kids with tuberculosis. So there's your tuberculosis. Oh,
0: God. Almost everything so far.
1: (laughs) Uh, And then she's like also hanging out with farm livestock on the side because why not? One day, one of her friends comes back from vacation. So her friend went to Africa. She came back with all these pictures and stories and et cetera. You know what you do when you go out to another country and you're like, this is so amazing and different when you're like a white girl from California or I guess from mm-hmm. Kentucky because they're in Kentucky. And Fossey was like, this is freaking awesome. Look at these pictures. This is so cool. And she was enthralled. And she was like, I need to be in Africa. I will one day be in Africa. And that's exactly what she did. So she put all of her life savings at the time, and she took a loan out to get to Africa.
0: Must have been a pretty interesting bank interview to try to get that loan. <laughs> I need to go to a different country.
1: <laughs> like, um, her tour took her to Kenya, Tanzania, Congo, Zimbabwe, and her tour guide's name was John Alexander. One of the stops was an archaeological site that was one of Lewis and Mary Leakey's. So Lewis and Mary Leakey, they were, like, archaeologists. They were a famous, like, uh, wife-husband duo. Mm-hmm. And the site that they went to was called the Old, Old Duvai Gorge in Tanzania. Uh, so when she went out there, she was able to meet the Leakey's. And Fosse names this moment as, like, a pivotal moment in her life. So specifically, it was when Lewis was talking to her and telling her that, like, Jane Goodall's work with the chimpanzees and, like, how important it was to have long-term research of, like, apes just in general. Mm -hmm. Just how, you know, we needed to know more about them. We needed to understand them more. We needed to respect them more. This, like, lit a spark in Fosse, as well as allowing, like, him allowing her to poke around one of his sites. So she was, like, out there and she got really excited. And she got so excited that she actually tripped and she fell down and she broke her ankle. Okay. Yeah. But, like, that didn't stop her from continuing on with her journey. So she then went on into the world, and she met a Kenyan wildlife photographer's at a small hotel in Uganda near the Virunga Mountains. It was called Mm -hmm. Traveler's Rest. And the hotel was owned by an advocate for gorilla conservation. His name was Walter Baumgartel. The photographers, Joan and Alan Root, allowed Fosse and her guide to camp behind their camp. It was while she was doing that that she got her first encounter with a mountain gorilla.
0: Oh, man. That must have
1: been wild. I know. Just out of nowhere. Like, she was out, like, maybe... She was out, like, peeing or something and then came back and there's a fucking gorilla there. Like, what? You're like, whoa, that is
0: not a raccoon.
1: Like, I'm a girl from California. I don't know what's happening, but this is great. I love you. That's literally her thought <laughs> process. That's, like, me with any, like, dog I see on the street. I'm just like, can I pet you? Like, that sort of thing. That's how she was like. She fell in love and was like, yo, I need to come back. And her first trip was essentially seven weeks long.
0: Okay. That's, I mean, that's a good duration. It's not like you're just going for Yeah. Like 10 days.
1: You went for a full two months. Like, that's crazy. So she goes back home to Kentucky so she could like live and pay off the loans that she took to take the trip to Africa. And when she did that, she published a few articles in the Choreo Journal newspaper about her visit. Mm-hmm you know, she was just writing about her two months there and she kept she kept a hold of them. Fast forward to nineteen sixty six, a lecture tour brings Louis Leakey to Kentucky. Ah, uh, so you know the archaeologist, the husband?
0: Yes. Yeah, that you mentioned was over in uh in Africa.
1: Yeah. So he came he came back to the States and he did a lecture tour and one of the stops was in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. She stands in line to show him the articles that she wrote about her trip. And this catches his attention. He was like, look, we need somebody to head a research program, reach a, like a research study in Africa about the mountain gorillas. Will you do it?
0: Oh, my goodness. That's so wild.
1: Yeah. And she obviously is like, Yeah. And, like, he, like, jokes around and was like, okay, well, you need to remove, like, an appendix or your appendix first before we can send you over. And she, like, goes home and she tries to, like, make it happen. <laughs> and, and he's like, whoa whoa, 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 okay, yes, I just wanted to make sure that you were serious enough. This is fine.
0: <laughs> oh, holy shit. All right, I'd be like, you can come with us, but first, you must lose an organ. Choose wisely. <laughs>
1: She was like, I'm going. (laughs) What's in Kentucky? Some horses. I want a gorilla. Like, Like straight up. It was crazy. Um, So he had this, like, habit of sending women to countries to stare at primates.
0: Okay, can you expand on
1: that (laughs) a little bit for us? (laughs) Uh, He helped essentially orchestrate three different studies with three different women. So they were called the trimates slash leaky's angels.
0: Oh Jesus. I know. It's it's intense.
1: Prominent female scientists originally sent by him to study great apes in their natural environment. So Diane Fossey looked at the mountain gorillas. Jane Goodall was the chimpanzees. And then Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know how to say this name. She's not American. Uh, and her name is not American, so I'm sorry if I fuck this up. So, Berute Galdikas. Galdikas. So it's B-I-R-U-T-E with a little like accent over the E, mm-hmm. and then G-A-L-D-I-K-A-S. So, Berute Galdikas. Okay. She studied orangutans.
0: All right. Well, yeah. Between the three of them, I mean, they've got they've got it covered.
1: Yeah, no, I just, I, I I, mean, we all knew about Jane Goodall. I kind of want to look into Ber- Berute, but if I can say her name correctly. I want to look into what she did, too. Um, So it took him about eight months to get funding for this project. They were like, he was like, look, I'm sending this woman out to Africa, to the Congo. She's got a degree in occupational therapy. She likes horses.
0: This will totally work. Trust me, guys. It'll be fine. It'll be fine.
1: It'll be fine. Like... <laughs> This is great. So this actually makes me feel a little bit better about my life choice or my life choices up to this point. Where maybe somebody will send me mm-hmm. to Africa to like study some sort of animal that I would love to study. Anyone out there, if you're listening, I will drop my job and do this thing. Don't you worry, I got you covered. You well, can I hope have my pen. No one
0: at your workplace is listening, <laughs> or your bosses.
1: To do this, first off, they would do the exact same thing. Uh, next employee
0: review. <laughs> <laughs> See her podcast episode seven.
1: <laughs> but also, none of them are listening. Whatever. It's fine. So, in the eight months that it takes for him to get the money, he fo- she focuses on learning Swahili and the work of George Schaller. So... He is a pioneer mammalogist when it comes to mountain gorillas. He started living in, like, central Africa at the age of, like, 26 to observe them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote something called The Mountain Gorilla, Ecology and Behavior in 1963. And that one was a more in-depth publication about the gorilla and what they're like and how their groups and their family dynamics and all that good stuff. Like, it it was yeah, more – yeah. was, it was a, hey, these are animals and they're not – brutes and they're not trying to kill you every two seconds they just want to live their lives look at how intelligent and beautiful they are Mm -hmm. and then the second thing that she read was the year of the gorilla which was done in 1964 and it was a two-year study that provided a broader perspective of gorillas like conservation and how important it was to like the overall like economy and the historical context and all that good stuff
0: okay all right so more of a broader cultural scope to their importance
1: Right, okay, right, right. so she puts that work in, and she starts reading, and she starts trying to understand what she's walking into. She she said yes and went. Oh shit, I don't know what's happening, uh-
0: <laughs> <laughs> but at least I have my appendix. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so her camp is in the Virunga Mountains in the Congo, on Mount McKenno and the photographer Alan Root that she had met before helped her get established. So he gave her like a brief on gorilla tracking, just like a like a crash course. Mm-hmm. And then helped her establish her camp, introduced her to a few men that would help her during her stay, so people that would, like, hang out on the camp. She lived in, like, this tiny tent where she, like, it was, like, five by seven or something ridiculous like that. She lived off of, like, canned food and potatoes, and she had a Land Rover. She named it Lily. <laughs> she But she, like, practically isolated herself. Like, if she didn't need food, she wasn't going to move Lily. She was going to stay okay. in the mountains. yeah. Her first day there, like, 10 minutes in, she came upon a male gorilla, like, sunbathing. And, like, he got scared and, like, ran away quickly. But she was just like, this is what I need. I just need to learn how to be around them more. And I, it just kind of, like, motivated her to, like, learn more and understand gorilla interactions. So mm-hmm. that was kind of like, uh, 10 minutes in and there's a freaking gorilla. Like, <laughs> this yeah, is great, no, we're guys. <laughs> So Alan, the photographer, left. An experienced gorilla tracker named Senwekwe, S-E-N-W-E-K-W-E, joined the team, and they worked closely together from then on. Like, he was the one who really got into, like, what gorillas were like. Like, it's—he it was, you know, how Schaller was, like, the academic view this guy mm-hmm. was the practical, okay, hands-on, let's do this. So from him, she learned the normal animal handling tactics. She, you know, have you ever seen me approach a dog, like actually approach a dog and not like me being silly and trying to pet the crap out of it?
0: Um, Not necessarily. I mean, because I see you in a more casual setting.
1: Yeah. Okay. So when I'm not casually running across some sort of doodle mix on the street, I am at work and the way that I handle animals is a little more calculated. So with new animals, I'm often like one knee on the ground, one knee like ready to go in case I need to like bounce back, like step up out of their face. Don't really mm-hmm. look them in the eye, kind of approach from the side instead of head on. If you're, you know, too tall, you scare them. Very slow, very calculated, just to gauge how friendly are we are and what we're doing. Mm-hmm specifically with the ones that don't like come up with their tail like hi how are you you know what i mean like the ones where i'm like i don't know where this can go i need to be a little more serious so that's kind of what she had to do with these gorillas not not essentially like kneeling down on the ground she would openly like sit down in a meadow and not move and like the gorilla see her but she's not a threat so they're walking around her You know what I mean? She's not going after them. She's letting them be in their space. She's simply there observing. That's that's simply what it is. So she would, like, write in her sketchbook about things. She also, like, started to, like, imitate them. So she would, like, scratch her head, eat some vegetation, kind of, like, mimic being a gorilla to make them more comfortable. And she would also make, like, content grunt noises. She would try Mm -hmm. to, like mimic the noises that they made when they were happy just kind of like a hello i'm friendly
0: oh yeah yeah
1: she knew each gorilla by their nose print oh <laughs> all right she knew them and there were like three different groups and she knew everybody in each group they were like li- like different families and anytime she saw a gorilla they would like these notes were so detailed and nothing was left out so she was doing that for a while until about 1967 Ah. Uh, When she got interrupted by some soldiers from Zaire. Surprise! Surprise! Political climate time, are you ready?
0: Ugh. All right, yeah, let's let's do this.
1: I'm going to start with the fact that I know nothing about African history, let alone specific countries like the Congo, but here we are. Thank
0: you, public education system of the United States of America.
1: Yay! God bless you. So, in the late 19th century, Belgium colonized the Congo. Obviously, as happened so often with colonized countries, the people of the Congo weren't happy and rebelled often. Uh, lots of upset for about close to a century, until about 1960, when Belgium finally said, yo, we're going to start an independence process for you guys.
0: Oh, how thoughtful.
1: I know. It was a local politician free-for-all. This meant a lot of rights and rebels back and forth, splitting up areas, switching out pol- like political leaders, not diplomatically. Or, there was definitely some bloodshed. Fast forward to 1965 with the reign of Mobutu, who was elected democratically. There are huge air quotes around democratically. So people are like, yeah, this guy's cool. And then he was like, yo, I have all the power. I do what I want. Sound familiar? Mm. mm. Part of what he wanted was to drum up an intense sense of nationalism and eradicate all Westerners from any positions of power. So they see this white girl in the forest with gorillas Fossey was definitely a target. There was also still an upheaval and rebellion, so there was all this, like... So, there was a rebellion in the Kivu province of Zare, and on July 9th, she was retained and escorted, also, big quotes, by rebels, down to the mountain safety. She was to kidnapped. Safety. Yeah, she was kidnapped. They actually detained her for two weeks. Okay. I, from what I understand, I guess they held her because Lily wasn't actually registered properly. So, she offered... The guards cashed to take her back to the Traveler's Rest Hotel, the hotel she went to the first time that she came into Africa. Mm-hmm. And then when she got there, like, because they couldn't resist, it was cash, like, cold, hard cash. So they took her back, and when she got there, she called the Ugandan police because rebels were holding her hostage, so she actually called, like, actual authorities. And then mm-hmm. they were arrested. She was questioned, and she was told not to go back to Zaire. She meets up with Leaky, and they're both like, No, you're going to go back to the gorillas. Like, you're going to keep doing this. And she's she's fine with it. She's like, yeah, let's do this. I'm doing it. Okay. Yeah. But she does it a little smarter because she can't go back to the Virunga Mountains. Mm -hmm. So she immediately founds Karasoki. She meets this woman, Elliot Demunk, who was Belgian, grew up in the Congo, but was forced to move to Rwanda for obvious political reasons. She knew Rwanda well. And she takes, like, the the neighboring country. So she takes Fosse around to different places to look for a new site. And finally, Fossie finds this meadow of Karasambi, where she has this view of, like, extinct volcanoes. And, like, because she she went to different sites, and there were, like, people in it. There were, like, cattle. There was always something, like, interrupting it. She was like, I can't. Girls aren't going to be out here. So she finds this place, and she goes, yo, this is it. The first part of the name Kari is for the first letters of Mount Karasambi or Karasimbe, to the south. Uh, and the Soke at the end of the name for Karasoke is for Mount Soke. That was the north of the site. It was 25 square kilometers, so 9.7 square miles. And she apparently was known by locals as... I don't know if I can say it. It translates to the woman who lives alone in the mountain. Yeah, that sounds about right. And it's... Mm, Nair... Wait, Nair Machabeli, or... Naira Masibiri. It's a very long, very long word. I'm just going to call her woman who lives in them. That sounds fair. (laughs) So, there, because nobody spoke Swahili, she had to learn a new language. They spoke a different language called Kinyarwanda. Okay. She not only had to, like, learn how to talk to people, but she also had to learn how to talk to the gorillas again because these were, gorillas were not as used to people. They were used to people being poachers, and they were often very scared. So she had to work extra uh, hard okay. for these guys. So on top of what she was already doing, she also had to, like, eat celery in front of them and essentially knuckle walk around like an actual gorilla. hmm Yeah. So, like, no, really... I'm just here to hang out, guys. Which, I mean, imagine if you were a gorilla who's used to humans being poachers and then you see this woman.
0: No, yeah. I imagine being like, I don't know what's wrong with her. She's
1: not like <laughs> the others. <laughs> you
0: know what, guys? Be nice to her. I think, I think she might be a little special. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know why she's eating fucking celery. I don't like it either. <laughs> it doesn't even grow in this region.
1: So, you know, you'd think knuckle walking around would make you feel somewhat qualified to do the things she was doing for close to five years, Uh, but Fosse didn't feel right. So despite being photographed in 1968 uh, and followed around by a National Geographic Society photographer and doing her job for half a decade... She felt she wasn't going to be respected in the scientific community without doing something else. She didn't feel like she had the right credentials to get people's attention and to support more funding. So in 1970, she enrolled in Darwin College in Lake Cambridge, traveled back and forth between there and Africa until she got her Ph.D. in animal behavior. Mm-hmm. So she made discoveries about gorillas, including how females transfer from group to group over the decades, gorilla vocalization, hierarchies, social relationships among groups, rare infanticide gorilla diets like what they ate, how they recycled nutrients. So just basically she studied their family dynamics and how they lived and social politics of the gorillas. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It gives you a better idea once you've able to kind of deconstruct that.
1: So when she after her PhD, she came back to do more research, but poachers were becoming a problem. So Mm -hmm. she took them on. Oh shit. Okay. She called it active conservation.
0: <laughs> With an AK-47 <laughs> fucking slung over her back. She's like, I am not fucking around.
1: Oh, no. She
0: bites into her celery stick. No, no.
1: <laughs> She's practically a gorilla. It's fine. So she was wearing masks to scare poachers. She was burning snares. She was taking on poachers directly, like causing conflict. She would buy supplies for the local rangers to sway them to pay more attention and stop poachers. Like, I got mm-hmm. you some boots. Now, can you maybe have them stop killing gorillas? <laughs> I'm Thanks.
0: Totally bribing you. Please don't let them kill my animals.
1: Exactly. Oh, and then also spray painting cattle. Okay. She was like, yo, herders, poachers, I'm going to spray paint your your animals. I don't understand it. But it was kind of like to deter herders from being in her area. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little extreme when you bring other animals into it. I'm really hoping that it's like animal friendly spray paint, but probably not. Especially not in the 1960s. Okay. So, I mean, she
0: was going, she was fucking hustling to really protect the animals that she really cared about and yeah, not taking shit. Yeah, she's like,
1: get out of their space we need to respect them.
0: Oh, my God. Does this mean she eventually gets torn limb from limb by an angry mob of men?
1: Her? No.
0: Okay. All right. Just checking. Because last episode, your scientist, your mathematician, kind of a shit end for her. Uh, just checking. I mean,
1: still a shit end. I Look, I just looked her up thinking I wanted, a, I wanted someone who worked with animals. And by the end of it, I was like, well, fuck.
0: Here we are. All right. Here we well, are. let's let's get there because <laughs> I'm not sure where we're going. So let's see how this <laughs> eventually ends in the death of a woman. Probably by the hands of the patriarchy. So let's see.
1: Let's see. Um so obviously this pissed poachers off. And then they killed their favorite gorilla, her favorite gorilla. So his name was Digit. He was a five year old mountain gorilla with a damaged finger on his right hand. So that's why his name was mm-hmm. Digit. In 1977 he was trying to save others in his group by fighting off poachers and allowing the others to get away, but in the process he was stabbed multiple times and oh. his head and hands were severed. So not quite torn limb from limb, but very not okay. Yeah. He was he was actually a well-known gorilla, not just a fossy, but to like he was like world wide known. So he had a picture taken with Fosse by a photographer named Bob Campbell. And the shot was so good that they used Digit as an official rep like representative of the park's gorillas. So mm-hmm. he was on posters, travel bureaus, like all over the world. People knew this gorilla's face. So she used the fact that people knew him to start something called the Digit Fund. It's it was later known as the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International. It funded anti-poaching efforts. Apparently, in four months in 1979, the Fosse patrol, consisting of like four people, destroyed 987 poachers' traps in the research area's vicinity. Nice. The, the, the official guards, consisting of 24 people, didn't touch any of the traps during the same period. So she helped in the arrest of several poachers who were like, who served or are still serving like really long life sentences. Mm-hmm. She made waves. It's fine.
0: Oh yeah, no, I mean, especially when you're trying to fuck up poachers.
1: Oh yeah, the I, you're, you're
0: gonna you're gonna piss people off, and you're you're gonna make enemies.
1: Yeah, so you're like you're not from this country, like, yeah, you you whoo. yeah. She had a lot of them. So 1980, she took a break. She moved to Ithaca, New York, was an assisting professor at Columbia College, and she focused on her book called "Gorilla in the Mists," and this book. It was made into a movie starring Sigourney Weaver. Oh, cool. Yeah. So afterwards, after her tour or whatever, she returned back to Rwanda to continue her work, and that didn't last long. So a couple weeks before her 54th birthday, she was found in her tent. She was slashed twice in her head, once in her face, by a machete. Okay. It was forced entry and no signs of it being a robbery. So they were like... This is murder. She was murdered. So there's some like there's some controversy around this because we still don't know who murdered her. There was spectacle that a Wayne McGuire was the murderer, and he was another scientist.
0: Do do they think someone paid him off to
1: do it? No, he wasn't. He was apparently wasn't happy with his own research and wanted to use like, because like her novel was so big. That people knew about it. And she was making a sequel. Like, she was working on a sequel. So, mm-hmm. it is expected or thought that he, like, broke in, killed her, and wanted to steal the sequel for his own research on mountain gorillas. Like, he wanted that to be under his name. Like, that was the oh, main thought. Okay. Yeah. He was actually tried and convicted in absentia for, like, her murder. Mm-hmm. So, he wasn't, like... In the Congo, and because there was no like, there's not really a back and forth between the US and like, yeah, Rwanda. yeah, and, and,
0: and extradition. Kind
1: yeah, of set up. there's okay. nothing there, so he didn't have to serve his sentence. Um, and then, of course, he goes on saying, like, on the news, going, Oh, we were great friends, I respected her greatly, um, the charges were outrageous, like, this guy needs to be brought in. It could be that or it could have been the poachers. They still don't know. But he was the one Mm -hmm. who was technically tried and convicted of it. So there's some aftermath from Fosse's death.
0: I I imagine there would be.
1: Yep. A will that she had written for, like, everything for, you know, the money from the book and any of its royalties, from the funding, any of that. All of that was going to go to the Digit Fund to underwrite anti-poaching patrols. Mm-hmm. She didn't mention her family. You know, she didn't really like her family, so she wasn't going to put her in there. And the Supreme Court Justice actually threw out the will and awarded the entire state to her mother because her mother Holy was like, shit. no, I want that money. It was. Oh, my God. Wow. $4.9 million in royalties um, from the book and the upcoming movie. And apparently the document was simply a draft of her purported will and not a will at all.
0: Uh. Um. Oh, so that was the main point of contention. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So she got she got a lot of money, and then the camp that she the research camp that she was on actually, because of all the political upbreast and upheaval, has been like destroyed multiple times. Like built up and destroyed. Like the actual cabin she lived in is like barely there anymore. Mm -hmm. Her pupils kind of ran it until it was like looted completely. And then they, like, relocated it to Muzanze. So Karasaki Research Center today conducts extensive, like, daily protection and, like, monitoring of the gorillas. But it's in, like, a different spot. Science, research projects, education initiatives, community health and development projects, it's all working towards giving back to the community. It's just been focusing on the protection and education of these creatures that she loves so much. Mm -hmm. Like, all of her life's work went into these animals. And she's actually buried next to Digit. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that, I thought that was really sweet. Like, they, she was just right next to him. So Mm. that's my story.
0: Well, that's fun.
1: Yeah.
0: So we've got murder, murder, and suicide, suicide. And uh, we're about to have an overdose.
1: Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah.
0: This is going to be fun.
1: Oh, we really got to like do more people who die in their sleep from old age.
0: You're going to like who I have to do for this episode because she's someone who like oozes sexuality. (laughs) Yes. This episode brought to you by Milena's evil laugh. (laughs) That's the knowing laugh of like, yeah, get a girl. Get it.
1: Oh, my God. Hi, Mom. Oh! Oh! Okay. I don't know. Did I tell you when I saw you the, um, when I went down that mom, Mommy Loves Us? Yeah, you mentioned that she's listened.
0: Yes. I think that's pretty awesome.
1: Hi, Mom. She's actually listened to every single episode. And, like, she called me, like, while I was, I think I was getting birth control. And she... <laughs> She left a voicemail, so like I was waiting for the doctor to come in, and like I couldn't call her because I was in like I was still waiting for the doctor. But like I listened to the voicemail, and I literally cried on that little like what's the what's the thing you sit on with the paper on it, like the the chair that you're supposed to sit on. Yeah, the exam table. The exam table. Yeah, I was on there. I was just crying. I was like, oh my
0: god, she loves it. She's proud of me. Aww.
1: And it was it was one of those moments. So. Hi, Mom. I love you. Oh, I love you, too. (laughs) No, I love your mom, too. (laughs) I know. I think she knows, too. But anyway. Yeah. No, I mean,
0: uh, this one's a little bumpy just because she was going through some shit in her life. Um, For this episode, I'm doing Greer Langton. And she was a sculptor, kind of most active in the 1980s in New York City very much in the um, kind of East Village art scene, researching her was a little different from the other artists and kind of groups that I've done. So people like the Gorilla Girls and last episode, Judy Scott, while they're not necessarily known to the public, they're pretty established in the art world. And Greer has a formal art education, and she was included in some prominent shows. But the literature on her is like comparatively sparse. Um, Just because she'd be considered kind of marginalized like during her lifetime. And you'll get a better sense of why when I kind of get into more about her and her life. Growing up, Greer knew that she was different. For one thing, she was born a boy. So that'll do it. She was born April 21st in 1958 to a middle class family in Michigan. Dad was a Presbyterian minister, mom a housewife. And she raised Greer, then Greg, and his older brother and sister. He was the youngest, which I think explains a lot about younger siblings. Hey, you guys tend to come be a little me. bit more attention seeking. Just you know, in my personal experience as a as the oldest sibling,
1: don't hate. You wish you were us.
0: <laughs> um, and from a young age, Greer says that he always felt feminine, which in the conservative nineteen sixties in Illinois, like I imagine that was really tough. And with a direct lack of source materials about Greer and her family, it's hard to say what growing up was like. Later on, she's got work in a in a show in Pittsburgh and in the artist statement she is really blunt about some really fucked up shit that happened, like being sexually abused by a family member. And Everything else that I came across and read about her, like, there's no mention of that. There's there's no one from her family speaking about her. So things are a little bit muddled as to, like, what really went on or, you know, the kind of family's Like, no, everything's fine. And they're like, well, then, I don't know, it doesn't sound like it. And we like, no, we love her. We would never do that.
1: Wait, so they they acknowledged that she existed, but they just didn't.
0: It's a little convoluted. And I'll kind of touch on that as we get into it, because there's moments where you're like, oh, that's super supportive from her family. And then, like, fast forward a bit and you're like, oh, that's actually kind of sounds a little shitty from her family. And again, there's I couldn't find anything from her family about her at all a lot of the times you do have family come out and be like oh let me tell you more about like my sister or my brother or my mom there's really nothing about that from greer from her immediate family so things like i said a little bit muddled here and there now a friend of greer's julia morton uh she recalls a family picture of the family together and it's really funny so it's a sunny day they're probably on the beach of um lake michigan there's mom, there's dad, the brother, the sister. Uh, we're talking khakis and sneakers and t shirts, and they're all smiling up on the camera. And then there's Greer. Impeccable <laughs> oh hair. My God. Black Chanel with high heels and red <laughs> lipstick.
1: Oh, man.
0: <laughs> I thought you definitely appreciate that. Um, I
1: mean, again, you just got to stand she's out. She's a
0: little different from the start definitely very different aspirations very different set of priorities than i potentially a conservative midwestern family who's living in illinois now the town she went to high school in park forest was set up as like a super 1950s middle class community and it was one of those like developed communities that came about post-world war ii aimed at being like an all-american city and during greer's early years the town was booming. And ever since then the population slowly declined. But okay, this is a random fun fact. So, LA County, it's the most densely populated one in the country. The county she lived in in Illinois, in Illinois, second most densely populated county in the country.
1: <laughs> Too many people get out of my bubble.
0: I thought it was intriguing. I just I would have thought like maybe like like Atlanta or New York City or Philly or DC. Wasn't counting on Chicago. Now, as a kid, Greer recalls making dolls at a young age, like as young as 10, from whatever materials that she could find. she used socks or pipe cleaners or flowers, and it kind of would be interesting to see how things might have been different if, like, her parents had just gotten her Barbie dolls. But, you know, since there's no account of her childhood, I mean, who's to say she didn't play with her sister's toys?
1: Oh, she absolutely did. Okay, as the younger sibling, I'm going to say that I definitely snuck into my brother's room to play with the toys that he had.
0: Yeah, I mean, that totally most likely happened, but again, there's there's no record of that, so I've, I have no idea. So, it's kind of all speculative. Like the majority of artists covered so far, they expressed an artistic skill from a young age. Greer was... Was doing that with her dolls, and that carried over later on, like professionally in her creative practice. So that's something that kind of stayed with her. Now, after high school, where she was an honor roll kid, I could find that. God bless the internet. <laughs> 3.5 to 3.9 GPA sophomore freshman year. Better than mine. <laughs> she went to the Art Institute of Chicago, and then later Pratt, which is in New York City. And I feel like it was in New York City that. Greer like really came into her own now at this point it's in the late 1970s that she's moving from Chicago to New York City and I imagine for Greer it was probably like really amazing to be away from her family and everyone in the town she grew up in and just be like whoever she wanted I gotta have that like nice fresh start in New York City and it wasn't long after she moved to New York that in 1979 she had sex transition surgery and Things are also a little muddled here. Now, some people say that for Greer's mom, it was easier to have a trans daughter than a gay son. Oh. it's And I'll get into that a little bit later on, and it kind of sort of makes sense, but still, you know, doesn't sound super supportive right away. And for the, the surgery itself, like, supposedly it was the dad's congregation that raised the money that paid for the transition surgery. Oh. Yeah. Like, again, what? there's these com- – <laughs> afflicting things okay if this was npr we'd be all like my favorite feminist has not been able to independently confirm this and i have it i have it on secondhand accounts of like her friends that have shared this and again there's nothing direct from the family so i'm not quite sure but we're just gonna keep on moving forward
1: when did she start using she pronouns
0: well people ask and she's like well i've always been feminine and you know when i was 21 i became i was a woman and that's when she had the surgery in 1979 so, like I said, like, 21, got the surgery, had the name change, and maybe a year later tries to commit suicide. Oh, no. Yeah. Again, that was something that I was kind of thrown in there by one friend, and no one else is mentioning it, which, you know, I get it, a little bit of a taboo subject. So, in terms of if she was okay with her ins- the transition if it was forced on her or if there's other stuff going on it's and there's no records from her when it comes to that stuff so um not quite sure now briefly on the history of sex change surgery as early as 380 bc in greece there's records acknowledging a fluidity in gender you know, between the traditional binary of, like, man-woman. And there's there's different terms across various cultures for a third gender in South Asia. We've got the Hyrule's, Kyois in Thailand, and the mukas the in Mexico. And I'm sorry if I've butchered any of those terms. It was in the 1860s that we've got a German legal academic, a Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, who was the first to formulate a scientific theory on homosexuality. And for that and for his additional work, he's considered, like, the pioneer of the modern gay rights movement. Um, I, there's essentially – there's a point he was in front of German parliament. And it was like, hey, guys, you know it would be really cool? If you could stop discriminating against gay guys because, you know, like, I'm gay. And everyone was like, all right, Carl, like, whatever. Like, ni- nice idea, but we got shit to do. And he was like, no, really, like, can we stop being, you know, discriminatory?
1: So he – what was his theory?
0: His theory, essentially, was that a homosexual man was a female psyche confined in the male body. Because he's around the same time as Sigmund Freud, so we have this all this like psychoanalysis going on. Yeah,
1: yeah. Interesting.
0: It it is, and I didn't research this point so much because I really wanted to focus on Greer. But so fast forward to Germany from the 1860s to the 1920s, and there's a doctor, a Magnus Hirschfeld running a clinic called the German Institute for Sexual Science. And it's here that the first sex change operation happened. And up to the 1970s, the emphasis in sex reassignment surgery is dealing with those female psyches trapped in men's bodies and transitioning them into women.
1: I mean, as a transgender individual, yes. But if you're just gay? Well, I mean, there's,
0: there's a whole lot of different theories. And I'm... I'm focusing more on her work and her art, but I feel like that might have been part of the structure that dictated that type of surgery. And also, from a technical standpoint, a little easier to do, you know, male to female than female to male. I mean, it took quite a bit for that type of surgical advancements to be more of a prominent thing. Now, the details for those surgeries have been lost, along with other records for the institution, because the Nazis burned down the library.
1: Those fuckers, of course they did.
0: Yeah. Now, jumping to the 1970s in the United States, and sex reassignment surgery has advanced, although it's still hindered by kind of social and cultural stigma, which is still a reality today. Now, for Greer, it's not stated where she received the procedure in 1979, but she was left with side effects, and that contributed to uh, continued drug use to manage the pain. A year later, here in the In the U.S., the American Psychiatric Association officially recognized gender identity disorder, which is now gender dysphoria, in 1980. And with this formal medical recognition, it opened the way for those diagnosed to receive care that was legitimized and thus covered under insurance.
1: Nice.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, they're still debating the actual clinical diagnosis, and that's a whole another issue. But in theory, you know, treatment like hormonal treatment shouldn't have to come out of pocket and should be covered by insurance. But even today, I mean that's that's still an issue is getting those those treatments financially covered by your insurance. Now, jumping back to New York City, angrier, it's the nineteen eighties. She's in the East Village and, you know, being in art school, I'm sure made that transition Smoother as opposed to being in the 1980s and back in Park Forest, Illinois. After graduating from Pratt, she really fell in with the whole East Village art scene. And that's a pocket of Manhattan that you'll be familiar with because it was depicted in Rent. <laughs> that was specific to the 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. So very artsy, very counterculture. Uh, starting in the 1960s, it really was an area for artists and musicians and students. Rent was cheap, and the counterculture vibe had already been established the decade prior in the 50s with the beatniks. And, like, the combination of creativity and drugs and anti-establishment attitudes, it was really artistically fertile. This is the neighborhood that punk originated. For a time, Iggy Pop, uh, he, Anchor, like, lived in the same building, and he became a collector over work.
1: Oh, shut up. Really?
0: Yeah. So, I, I mean, this pocket, it was really creatively dense and there's there's a lot of big names that have come out of that era and that period of time. So, while we've got punk going on, we've got postmodern art and essentially that just means art that's getting a little less formal. So, we've got things like conceptual art and installation art kind of coming about. And some of the biggest names to come from this this period, Jeff Koons. Are you familiar with him? He does the, the giant dog inflatable blind <gasps> animals.
1: Oh, my God. No. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Wasn't there was like a whole lawsuit that surrounded him.
0: That wouldn't surprise me. Um. So he's he's like one of the biggest names right now in, in contemporary art. And Jean-Michel Basquat. Bus- I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name. In 2017, a painting of his became the most expensive American artwork sold for over 110 million dollars.
1: What was it of?
0: Um, uh, Skull. He And he's part of, uh, it's the 27 Club, right? Yeah, he, he passed away from a drug overdose when he was 27 and was known for like his street art and also did music too and graffiti art and very much like anti-establishment outside traditional art world kind of vibe.
1: Hey, guess what?
0: Did you just fart?
1: No, I was going to say that in a couple of months, we're not going to be eligible for the 27 Club.
0: I'm okay with that.
1: I'm totally okay with that too. We survived.
0: I, yeah. Right. Well, don't jinx us just yet. Um, but
1: also, yeah, I did fart.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know my Milena. Uh, all right. So we've got those big names coming out of this this postmodern art scene. And Greer she was becoming well known, I mean, both for her art as, you know, for being transsexual as well. And her success was in part due to the activism built from the Stonewall riots. And that happened in the neighborhood bordering the East Village, Greenwich Village, in 1969. And those rights acted as a catalyst for asserting LGBTQIA rights. And the conditions that led up to that were a really pivotal point that shed light on why Gure's mother possibly wanted her child to be a trans woman as opposed to a gay man. Because as you might suspect, pre-LGBT rights It was, it was pretty shitty, especially in the 1950s and 60s. In New York State, in the 1960s, soliciting homosexual relations was illegal. It wasn't until 2003 that the Supreme Court struck down a Texas same-sex sodomy law, ruling that the government can essentially fuck off when it comes to who sleeps with who, and that effectively legalized homosexuality in the United States. With the strengthening of the great gay rights movement of the 60s and 70s, people were assholes and they ramped up the sodomy laws that went from preventing non procreative sex to explicitly targeting gay people. And from these laws, it really inhibited, you know, gays from raising children. So for gaining custody of their kids, for adopting, able to refuse them being foster parents. And it also allowed for them to be fired or denied jobs. And, uh, and it really stripped them from protections against hate crimes. Unreal. I don't... And it- I mean, it wasn't until 2003 ruling that those laws were ruled discriminatory. And that's just like a slice of it. That's just a little piece of much larger, broader issues. And, you know, with those few social and legal hurdles that a gay person would have faced, Greer's mom, you know, in wanting her child to have a sex change surgery, you know, that could have been her way of trying to protect her child from that. Because suddenly, if you're a woman and you're in a, you know, like a heterosexual couple, like you don't have to worry about any of that. That's true. So it's this weird loophole. But I mean, even then, having that transition, like, yeah, there's still a lot of social stigma associated with it. So, you know, either way, you're...
1: You just don't tell anyone. Oh,
0: uh, Yeah, I but still, so a boatload of problems. So Greer was living in the East Village during its peak from 1982 to 84, and that was influenced by the Reaganomic boom of the 1980s, but... Uh, that's economics. I think it's interesting, but um, I'm gonna in going to spare you and not go into into that. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> it's fascinating. I still debated whether or not it was legitima- legitimate today. But that aside, so it's post-Stonewall era. And while things weren't perfect, there's a very rich and very vibrant and also very drugged scene going on that Greer felt welcomed in. During this time, she becomes friends with photographer Nan uh, Goldlin. Are you familiar with her? What did she do? All right. Well, she documented Greer and others during this time, not necessarily as, like, an outsider, like, a documentary photographer, like, looking in, but she was she was someone in the community absolutely immersed, and she was, like, detailing it and what she was going through. Gotcha. Uh, so very counterculture stuff. In 1996, a documentary was released about Nan and her work titled I'll Be Your Mirror and If you guys check out the show notes, there's a link to it and you can watch the entirety of it. 45 minutes. It's pretty interesting. And that included Greer. So it was her along with Nan's other friends. And they're reminiscing about, you know, those old days in the East Village where they basically had no money, but were partying and doing drugs and having a sexy good time. So at the same time, you've got all this going on. Crack cocaine has hit hard in the 80s.
1: I need exactly one crack, please. Just one.
0: Uh, It's... I mean, it's it's cheap, and it's easy to get your hands on, especially in New York City. And at the same time, there's this gay plague that's hating people. Mm. And in the 1996, you know, documentary, like, Nan and this interview, interviewed, they talk about just how hard it was. Because a lot of the people that they're talking and they're reminiscing about are dead and have died from AIDS. Shit it yeah no it god there's this one heavy moment where she includes a couple a french couple one a gallery owner and the other a also an artist but a bodybuilder so of course the gallery owner like compared to like his partner seems like so scrawny because the guy's so beefy but he's just like he's like a normal size and she was good friends with him and i, I totally forget their name and the the gallery owner gets gets aids and so she documents the couple but there's this, this really powerful photo she took where, you know, this big buff bodybuilder is gently bent down and kissing his partner on the forehead. And I mean, he looks like he's just been starved to death.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. I, whoo, sitting out on my front porch watching this on my computer and tearing up, thinking, like, what if that was you? Like, what if that was my partner? Like, all the bargaining, you'd, you'd be like, just take, just, just split my life force. We'll go half and we'll just we'll go out at the same time together and just I I can't imagine just how powerless you'd be in a situation like that watching your loved one just, just waste. dying before your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean I'll touch on well. I mean it was fucking hard. I Greer said that going to New York City was like going to a ghost town. All the sex and drugs of the the early to mid eighties, it left a lot of people vulnerable. And a lot of friends died. She said that after she reached 40 friends in her phone book that she had to write that they they died. She, she stopped keeping count. I mean, it's like devastating losses. And oh God, the fucking Reagan administration was doing shit. They were focused on their trickle-down economics rather than the growing numbers of people dying from AIDS. And when Reagan's press secretary was asked about it, like for the first time... People laughed. They legit thought it was a joke.
1: What? What? They were just like, ah, that's that's not even a, on our radar? Like, what?
0: Yeah. No, and so in the show notes, I've included a link to a piece including a, a short documentary about it, and it includes the original audio, and there's also audio and, or a transcript of it in the article as well. And the reporter, I forget his name, he, he addressed them, and he was like, look, you know, we've got X amount of people dying from this, this disease called AIDS. Is the president aware of it? And the press secretary, Larry, just kind of like like brushes off like, what? Like, I, f- I don't know what you're talking about. And they legit laugh. What an asshole. Yeah. What's worse, though, is that that same reporter follows up. And by now, it's I think about two years on, a significantly more amount of people have died from it. And he asks again. And Again, there's laughter in the press room because it's like, whatever. Like, I'm dealing with the president of the United States. Like, I don't have time to care about gay people dying.
1: And fucking. It, you
0: know. Yeah. No, it'll it'll piss you off. So in that Save 1996 96 documentary, Greer says, like, it just as easily could have been her to get sick. I mean, she was doing all the same things um, and she just as easily could have been exposed to HIV. But instead, it was the drugs that killed her.
1: <laughs> well, it's going to be one of the three things, right?
0: yeah yeah now for her art uh girl's in her 20s she's living it up and while she's partying and doing drugs she's doing the art making and as a kid you know her interest in dolls followed her and that's what she's making using mixed materials she'd create these figures of like various sizes and typically all her sculptures were rendered with this like hyper awareness of the body and like the level intention and detail that went into them, along with the exaggerated forms, made them this like combination of both beautiful and really grotesque. And what's cool is like she made all her her forms like with articulating armatures so that we, she could move and pose them. And she gave her dolls like taxidermy eyes and at times actual like real hair and teeth. So she she put a lot of a lot of time and effort into really crafting these really strange. But I think absolutely amazing dolls. In a 1995 interview, she says that she collects photographs of people like who are very skinny or very fat. And her use of the body in her pieces, like touch on these larger social themes that American culture has with the body. You know, you can never be skinny enough. Like, and if you're not super skinny, then of course you're fat. And having transitioned at the age of 21, I'm sure that kind of awareness of her body and her unique position of seeing it as like, a male form and a female form, was like this constant undercurrent for her. And and part of that manifested in her eating disorder. Since she was 19, she was dealing with anorexia.
1: Oh, man. So she's like not eating and she's like putting drugs in her system.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I imagine a very heavy toll on her body. Oh, no. And you can see, like, her own anorexia, like, displayed in her work. Because at times, you're these very, like, skeletal figures with very protruding bones. So, but then there's also these very, like, generous and robust figures. So she tend to work at these two, like, opposite polarizations of, like, what the human body is capable of. And these two extremes. In terms of who she sculpted, uh, it was a mix of herself and friends and also the occasional celebrity the most recognizable being jackie kennedy
1: jackie kennedy was perfection okay
0: yeah and it it also kind of speaks to like greer's glamour and her own aspirations and how these are things this beauty she like idealizes and in the the sculpture she did of jackie kennedy and she's wearing the same outfit the day that her husband was assassinated and she she did all the costume work oh wow yeah and there's a on the suggestion of a, um, I believe, like a gallery owner, she started doing photographs of her work. So she'd posed her sculptures and her, you know, her dolls and kind of make these scenes for them. So it also gave it a little bit more of like a performance aspect to it. In addition, it's just like these static objects.
1: For some reason, all I can think about is the cover for the Marilyn Manson album for um, the family sitting around the TV. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the album.
0: Yeah, no, it's this first one. Uh, Portrait of an American Family. There you go. I might have been a little bit of a Marilyn Manson fan, especially in high school. Her work is is rendered very cleanly and of course as always we'll have images of it up on the show notes to give you guys an idea so nice smooth clean surfaces and she'd apply makeup to them and do their hair and you know do their costume their outfits so they're they're not quite as rough as what you're describing in that that album art fair so there's always a there's a glamour to all the sculpture she did even if people might look at them and be like oh it's a little fucked up they're all very glamorous and they've got like this this great kind of like sexual identity to them that resonates off of them I feel in part because that was a part of her personality very you know outgoing now one of my favorites of her sculptures is a woman um sculpted from the head to the mid thighs and she's got like one hand on a bony hip and the other looking like it should be holding a cigarette and she's bald and her her, her rib cage is protruding and she just has like this intense stare and With all of her work, there's just, there's such personality and intention in expressively, like, modeling the characters. Like, it's just, it's, they're all so distinct. And like I mentioned, you know, they, they radiate, like, this sexuality. And there's a vitality to her work that's just unflinching in who she's depicting. One of Greer's most prominent works is a bust of Cindy Darling. And she was an actress and amused Andy Warhol and like a, a transsexual icon. She, she was more a prominent figure in the 1860s. And Greer did a bust of her with this like heart-shaped cavity in her chest and it's slightly larger than life. And it's got lyrics on the back of it from The Velvet Underground who wrote a song about Cindy Darling. And Cindy, she died young at 29 from cancer. And unfortunately, that, that kind of came to mirror Greer's own life. Now, Greer's work gained attention with her inclusion of the 1981 New York New Waves show that the Museum of Modern Art put on with their PS1 gallery in Long Island City. And from what I've come across, it sounds like it was a really fun, like, fuck you to the established New York art scene. Work was informally displayed. They just really kind of put it anywhere and everywhere in the show. So it didn't have any of the traditional gallery layout nor traditional established artists. After the show, she had work at a gallery called The Civilian Warfare, and she eventually had a solo show there and like the turnout was great you know friends were saying that she was glowing in the spotlight in 1982 she becomes really good friends and eventually marries uh designer paul monroe and he was a business partner to her friend that i mentioned earlier julia and she's the one who described that family photo of her at the beach with her family in Chanel. and together they worked einsteins and that was a, a clothing boutique that paul ran along with julia and Greer used that front window as like her own gallery space. And also a little bit as a theater. So in the front window, she would display her, her dolls and she would craft scenes and costumes from them. And like I mentioned, like the, the photographs as well. And, you know, her work is a little strange, but as her friend Julia put it, you know, Greer was warm and generous and quote, also reflected in her work, a unique isolated vantage point, you know, on both sexes. And her exploration of gender, outcasts, and norms of beauty mesh perfectly with art world trends. So come 1987, Greer marries designer Paul and their friend Nan, she's the wedding photographer, and her dad officiated the wedding. Yeah, that's so sweet. Yeah, um, so like her and her husband Paul, they were inseparable, and um, together they f- fueled one another's eating disorders and their drug use. Oh, not
1: not that sweet. I I take it back. Yeah, no,
0: no. I mean, like again, going back to her family, like her dad officiated, and that was really sweet and obviously supportive. But then we're gonna hear some more stuff later, and you're like, well, that sounds less supportive. So yeah, late eighties, she's married, doing a shit ton of drugs. And things kind of get a little shitty. Now, fast forward to the early 1990s. She's divorced and is living in Chicago closer to her family.
1: Wait, how long was she married? Well, it's a little disputed.
0: So 97, they married. And then in 87, they married. And then after she's passed away, her husband is like, Oh, we didn't actually divorce her mother forged my signature so it's it's contested whether or not you know it was forged documents or not so we'll kind of we'll get to that but it was in the early 90s supposedly about 94 95 when supposedly the divorce went through with that drug use you know her work tanked and so moving was a chance to like clean up and kind of start over again And things they really did start to pick up for her. She had two pieces in the 1995 Whitney Biennial and the the Venice Biennial. And those are two very big deal, large scale international art shows. And after that, she was asked to create an installation piece at the Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh. And that was founded in 1977 by artists and meant to be a site just for site specific installations. Now, when the people curating and running The Mattress Factory Show went and visited Greer in Chicago, they they were pretty shocked. Her place was just an absolute crazy hot mess. She just, she was living in a, a studio apartment and she just had her work everywhere. I mean, I just put the art on the walls and then her own art and then everything on the floor, like an absolute tornado that had like kind of gone through and just crap was everywhere. Now, when they saw the state of her studio apartment, they were kind of like, holy shit, this is your installation. Like we need to set up and make a a replica of your studio apartment just as it is because it was just so visually overwhelming and just so personally greer and like such her personality style. So they flew her to Pittsburgh and she got to oversee the creation of, you know, her own studio created within the factory. And what resulted was the most ambitious project and you know the highlight of her career and despite weighing only 90 pounds and being sick from the drug use you know she was she was fucking killing it you know she was managing stuff and creating her largest installation to date
1: so she didn't sleep
0: oh it was like non-stop yeah and yeah like one of her friends kind of later commented like you know i think she knew the end was near because she was just completely throwing herself into it and even though she had all these like personal things going on and even just physically how draining it must have been like she fucking pushed through it and hustled the fucking got that shit done oh and what resulted
1: was that her final piece
0: yeah oh no yeah we'll get to it we'll get to it and what resulted is a, a replication of her studio I mean, the ceiling is painted with stars, sculptures and dolls line the room, and, you know, art and photos, like, cover the wall, like, most of the wall space. And it's this really surreal space to, like, walk into and to think, like, someone actually, like, this is their studio that they, they live in. It's not just, like, a work studio. Because you've got all these, like, strange characters. I think they really reflect, like, yourself. And these characters also touch a little bit on, like, puppetry too so with all the characters packed into this room it almost has this like jim henson feel to it It, you know it looks like the sculptures at night might turn and talk to one another like that's just how much personality that they that comes across and one of the pieces that she has which is pulling from i think just what she witnessed people go through with aids is this like life-size just absolutely emaciated figure lying in bed surrounded by empty pill bottles just staring up at the start ceiling and unfortunately i think it's a little bit of foreshadowing as to you know kind of how she was found yeah 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 don't worry we'll get warm and fuzzy next episode i promise <laughs> no murder uh no suicide and no overdoses i pinky promise
1: she uh she was found in her bed
0: for the note, Milena is not holding up her pinky um, to the camera for me to see. Sorry, I wasn't even looking so, at. I
1: was trying not to think about how she was found. I'm just pinky, pinky. Okay, up. all
0: right. We visually, I have visual pinky promise confirmation. Otherwise, I can't promise that Milena is not going to slip some some murder or sexual assault in next episode. No,
1: no tragedy. I promise.
0: All right, I got it. Now, the title for the entirety of her installation is and it's very aptly titled, you know, it's about me, not you. Now, while this is going on in New York City, um, there's a retrospective being put on by the Whitney Museum of Art of the photography work of her friend, Nan. And Nan decided when they asked her like, okay, what photograph of yours do you wanna use for your exhibition poster? Um, this is the poster that's gonna be plastered everywhere in all the advertising for this really big art show. And she settled on a photo of Greer, Oh Yeah. Unfortunately a month after the opening in November of nineteen ninety six, Greer was found dead from a drug overdose. I think she was only like thirty four.
1: Thirty four years old. That's a baby still.
0: Yeah. I mean and things were really just starting to take off and she was just trying to, you know, just starting to hit a stride. So I mean when you asked earlier about like, oh, why was she considered, you know, kind of like a marginalized artist? Like This is why, you know, she was very much on the fringes of a mainstream society and what we consider like, you know, normal, definitely not the traditional nine to five job, 401k. She just, she just lived a, you know, very different life.
1: She burned loudly and quickly.
0: Yeah. And that's, that same type of energy is really reflected in her work too. Now, how her family treated her work after her death is disputed, you know, and just like Paul disputes how authentic the divorce papers are. You know, he kind of disputes how her family treated her work. And at the moment, he's working on a book and an HBO documentary about her, of which Leah Dunham is a producer.
1: I have so many feelings about that sentence.
0: Yeah. He's living in her guest house in L.A. while, while he works on the project. Uh-uh. He's lived there for a few years now. Uh -uh. And he uses his actual place to store all of uh,
1: Greer's art. So many feelings right now. I don't even know where to start.
0: (laughs) I know. Um, Now, he claims that her family threw away everything after she died. Bullshit. Her art, her photographs, even her wedding dress. And actually, that totally does check out.
1: Really? Yeah. But, like, now her... And I know that like her family was like a like a flippy floppy or not really sure what's going on but like he her dad officiated her wedding. So like at some point like they care enough about her to still be in her life somehow. I I find it really hard to believe that they threw everything away. Well, just wait, just wait. And again,
0: like that's why I started at the top like things are a little muddled. Like I'm not I'm not sure. I don't know. But I do know with this While there's not much written on her time in Chicago, she did befriend and mentor an artist called Jojo Baby. And he dug her wedding dress out of the dumpster and kept it as part of a shrine to her. Oh, man. So, obviously, they were willing to throw away her wedding dress. I mean, what else were they willing to throw away? Oh. And again, we don't know if maybe it was like a sibling who was doing this or if there was infighting with the family or, you know, I have no idea. A few years ago, there was a short documentary uh, profiling Jojo Baby. You know, he's a Chicago-based sculptor, performance artist, and also an influential figure in the Chicago drag scene. And in the documentary, he talks about Greer teaching him you know how to make armatures for the dolls and what materials to use and she really passed on how she made her work like to him and like her you know he was fascinated with dolls and with the wedding dress that he got out of the dumpster like he made a shrine to her and included a likeness that he sculpted along with it
1: oh my god that's her family
0: yeah and you know after her death, the installation piece at the Mattress Factory it was it was put into storage. But then in uh, in 2006, I believe her her family donated it, so it's now on permanent collection. So again, I mean, where her family stands on her, like I've I've no idea. Like they've donated her work, but at the same time, they're throwing everything out of her studio apartment, and I feel like that's in part why. Paul stepped up to represent Greer. You know, he's been collecting as much of her work as possible. But unfortunately, the friends and collectors that had her work, a good many of them died from AIDS.
1: So she didn't really have anybody.
0: Well, no, there's just none of those like original collectors today. And so what happened to the artwork after all those people, you know, passed, it's, you know, it's a little harder to track down that artwork. And he's been putting together the art for a, a project called GLAM, the Greer-Linkedin Archives Museum. And he's committed to ensuring Greer's creative legacy. Even though she had a traditional art school education and displayed works in galleries, the circumstances under which she lived, you know, kind of pushed her to the margins of society. And that that otherness, you know, living out of step with mainstream America, it, it created like this really powerful, emotionally charged body work. And I feel like that directly confronts a lot of unpleasant or, you know, sexually charged realities that most people don't want to deal with let alone talk about and going back to her artist statement for the mattress factory where she mentioned that sexual abuse from a family member i mean she lays out some other heavy shit like the drug abuse and the mental illness and for me the richness of her art you know that while at times coming from a hard place you know she chose to keep making art and making well-crafted beautiful art that while some people might call fucked up i think making art probably helped her get through her fucked up moments, and so for me, I mean that's why I chose her for this episode, and uh, that's why she's my favorite feminist. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're really ended on a nice warm and fuzzy ending for both our uh, our uh, our people.
1: I'm so sorry. I really thought it was gonna end well. I obviously never saw the movie on my lady.
0: And there is to be a, well a documentary about uh, Greer, but uh, yeah, swear to God, next episode. All the fucking warm and fuzzies. Like, if I can make things, like, super duper adorable, like, to the point where you want to throw up, I'm going for it. Let's do it. Full disclosure. Yeah. Oh, uh,
1: man. I don't know. I don't know what science is warm and fuzzy. Hamsters working with animals. Well, no, I tried that this one, and we, we yeah, saw how yeah. well that went. Um. Oh, my God. Can you
0: imagine a scientist who's out in, like, the plains of China being one with the wild roaming herds of hamsters and then having to fight against local authorities oh and work with them against illegal poaching efforts of hamsters. And she's like, you guys just don't understand them and like all on all fours with like as many fucking carrots shoved in your face as possible. Okay. Somehow that just doesn't have the same alert as like (laughs) studying Oh my Fucking god. Fucking gorillas. So or orangutans. We're gonna. Or chim- chimpanzees.
1: We're gonna travel all the way back in time to 2008, I think, uh, when little 17 year old Milena got a hamster for the first time in her life. Because uh, you think, you know, little kids should have hamsters. Nope, she was not allowed a hamster growing up because. It was a rodent. They're stupid. And rodents weren't allowed in the house. But I somehow convinced my parents to allow this because I was still technically living with them at the time. And I brought home the best hamster in the world. His name was Dio.
0: I hope you could feel, imagine my eye roll at that.
1: He was the best fucking hamster, Megan. The best hamster. And I will explain that in a second. He smelled
0: funny. I'm going to say it.
1: He did. He was a hamster. What did you expect? I didn't like it. So, I bring home this hamster. Megan is my best friend at the time. She still is, obviously. She comes over all the time, right? And she asked me, why the hell, you know, did I have a hamster? What's so great about a hamster? Meanwhile, I come home with a hamster, a hamster cage. It's like three hamster stories tall. I spoil the crap out of Dio. And then a whole bunch of magazines where I just like, read through and absorbed all of the knowledge of hamsters. And I told her many things, one of which was that hamsters get diabetes. Oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) The second was that they originated in Africa. I think the teddy bear hamster originated in Africa. And the dwarf hamster originated in China because she was asking where they even came from, how they even existed. And I was like, well, they essentially, you know, used to live in the wild, and we just, like, took some of them in. And she has never been able to get over the fact that hamsters were just living in the plains of Africa.
0: I just think it's a ridiculous visual I mean, to imagine them scurrying around and then one of them checking their little watch and be like, wait, guys, wait, oh, time to check our blood sugar.
1: All right. <laughs> But, like, there are smaller animals that live hamster. in the wild.
0: I just think it's silly.
1: Anyway, the reason, I'm just going to also throw this out, the reason Dio was the best hamster in the world was because he loved the Beatles one, and that he was so old, like, so old. He lived two and a half years, which is super long for a hamster. But I had gone away to college at that point, but I couldn't take him with me. So he waited an entire semester as an old man to wait for me to come home and cuddle him before he finally passed away. He cared. Okay.
0: All right. All right, if you say so. He fucking cared. I don't I don't want to tarnish the love that you have for your dad hamster. That would make me an asshole. What type of friend would I be? RIP Dio. All right. Well, (laughs) thank you guys for listening to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. We really appreciate it. Now, me, Lena, um, as always, if people are interested in seeing our show notes where they can see images of the work that both amazing women did uh, or learning more about us on those social media sites, where can
1: they go? So the show notes you're going to find on myfavoritefeminist.com. If you wanted to hit us up and say hi, we have an email. Email us at info at We have Facebook and Instagram, both under my Favorite feminists. I am holding myself accountable sometime before the next episode comes out. There will be a Twitter account. I promise. You can hear us on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. And while you're listening to us on iTunes, you can go ahead and rate us. And also, in the comment section below, we're going to lighten the mood. Let us know what your favorite pet was, what their name was, why they were your favorite pet. And we don't discriminate. So we like furry things. We like scaly things.
0: Please tell us, Poe, you're dead creatures.
1: Or alive. They could still be alive. Okay, all right. I personally have I'm just four animals. my scruffy butt's the best butt. Megan, how many do you have?
0: Um, I have, I've got one little adorable scruffy butt who is the best dog ever.
1: He's very spoiled.
0: But, I mean, let's be honest. All dogs are the best dogs ever. Unlike <laughs> <laughs> hamsters, who are oh, smelly.
1: Excuse you. <laughs>
0: um. So until next time, we'll see you then. Have a good one, guys.
1: Bye. Bye.